0: We're trying to summarize myself in one sentence um what a global investor would you think today about israeli founders scrappy efficient, well-networked highly technical. all right alex conrad i am putting you on the other side of the proverbial
1: microphone uh today uh why don't you introduce yourself instead of me introducing you Absolutely. Uh, great to be here. I'm Alex Connett, a senior editor at Forbes. I've been at Forbes for 11 years, which is insane. And um, I cover venture capital, startups, and high-growth technology companies. Amazing. Uh, by the way, I don't remember. How do, how do we know each other? We met, I believe, when I wrote the first magazine story about WeWork uh, almost 10 years ago, when it was a plucky New York City startup with an Israeli founder. Wow
0: that's kind of full circle a decade later
1: right now. Yeah. Yeah. 2014, um, when we wrote the story, they were still getting inquiries from seed investors trying to get into the first round. They were already valued at 1.5 billion. Um, you guys were in there and, uh, it, it was a really exciting, you know, local startup. And that was my focus at the time, New York city startups.
0: Those were the days, $1.5 billion startups. It feels like, uh, a long time ago, uh, right now. So, Alex is also the editor of the Midas list, uh, the 30 under 30 for VCs and and, and other things, and a uh, variety of other lists that have made uh, Forbes uh, so famous and Alex so well known in the venture in the venture capital world. But I actually want to start somewhere else. Uh, some time ago, I can't remember exactly when it was. You told me a story about your grandfather coming to Haifa.
1: Do I, do I remember that right? We were kind of going to do research on him. So what was that story about? My great-grandfather um, was, I, I want to write a book about him someday. Um, my great-grandfather lived an incredible life. He um, you know, grew up in uh, Minnesota, volunteered for World War I, um, fought for Canada before the war had started um, for the U.S. He um, stayed in Europe in the 20s. He was a researcher, an academic. He met Freud. He met Adeturk. Um, volunteered to drive an ambulance. And um, he was a professor and 40 at the start of World War II um, and was took the test, uh, the field test for the OSS, the precursor of the CIA, with some of his peers. Unlike them, he did so well on the test that they sent him into the field and he ended up leading the Allied resistance, um, the fighters on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And his resupply uh, port when he needed a break, he needed new supplies, was Haifa. Um, And what makes that more poignant is that we didn't find out until after his death that he was actually Jewish and the son of Ukrainian immigrants um, born Moses Silberman. So my middle name is actually Royce, um, but Morton Royce was uh, a name he assumed so that he could have more opportunities to go to the Ivy League when it was still limiting uh, Jewish students. And he actually um, had lived this entire kind of second life, but um, can only imagine what he was thinking, you know, leading the resistance fighters, uh, going back to Haifa, um, all with this Jewish identity that he was not able to talk about. Pretty crazy.
0: What an incredible story. I didn't realize that you were also named for him. Uh, uh, and yeah. He, he yeah. I didn't realize that part of the story. Well, that's incredible. You know, the, the other thing, by the way, you mentioned Full Circle. We talked about Full Circle in relation to WeWork. Uh, On some level, what you described right now about your great-grandfather and the inability to get in as uh, someone Jewish into the Ivy Leagues and having to change his name, that's a little full circle right now also with the anti-Semitism going on uh, on campuses. I'm curious what you think about that, um, especially given the the family heritage and history.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for for my company or for a lot of people. Um, I think as a, you know, Harvard graduate, a lot of my peers are, you know, feeling a lot of concern um, for anti-Semitism rising in the U.S. It feels like, you know, something that our grandparents definitely fought against. And, and to see um, it coming back in any forms is super disturbing. Um, and I think, you know, for me as a journalist as well, I'm always trying to get all the perspectives. And this is a really scary time where I feel like I have friends I love, um, from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, from, uh, Muslim backgrounds or, or Palestinian backgrounds as well, who are hurting. And it feels like there is not a lot of, uh, constructive dialogue or at least, uh, empathy from, from my perspective. And so, you know, I, we just had Thanksgiving here in the U S and, you know, it was one of those things where I almost felt like maybe I should just keep my mouth shut because this is not a time to kind of have those, um, Really empathetic conversations. So, so what I've seen on at universities feels tone deaf and um, not constructive, um, and and really disturbing and sad to me. Well, why do you think it's kind of started to happen again at this moment? I mean, I, you know, I live
0: uh, abroad now, although I have cousins at you know Columbia and and NYU and places like that. Like, how, how did we get to this moment that this is now erupted again on college campuses?
1: Yeah, it you know I, I studied archaeology and history, so I I kind of think more in the past than than maybe like current trends. So I could only speculate, but I think you know, um, social media is a major contributing factor to people having quick reactions to things, wanting to participate in the the discourse of the moment, feeling like maybe it's uh, you know everyone wants to weigh in on everything, everyone wants to participate. And maybe they're not fully educated on the subject, um, so I think you can have well-meaning or earnest young people um, finding themselves in positions that they will regret or you know they would repudiate later on. Um, and I think you know honestly, it's not just you know, and, and the anti-Semitic side really does you know resonate with me personally. But it's not just one group of people here. I think you know I've seen a lack of empathy elsewhere too on other subjects you know completely different from this um, it just feels like we're not in a moment of a lot of um, open, open minds you know we, we just saw an athlete here in the US delete his social media accounts because he couldn't play in a football game because he's trying to be healthy and fantasy football people came after him with death threats until he deleted his social media like that is not a normal uh, situation
0: yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. Like you're a journalist who investigates mostly technology, which will come to soon. But it's like the point you made about the athlete, the the lack of of empathy. I think is a, is 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 a, is a good word um, that has exploded. Um, this feels like a moment in time uh, where you know a lot of forces maybe it's pent up. Uh, frustration for the pandemic. Maybe it's social media, as you describe. But you see it also, I'd argue, in some of the mainstream media too. So it's not just social media, the impact of social media on mainstream media. Like, how, how do you think we got to this moment, and how would you say we get out of it, particularly in these combustible areas?
1: Well, one thing is if people are upset about the media uh, coverage that they see, and I know there's been a lot of um, intense feelings there, obviously the media is a really heterogeneous uh, situation and so when people complain to me about the new york times i'm like great you know the new york times isn't promoting my work or really going out of its way to help alex so i don't know how you expect me yeah (laughs) i don't know how you expect me to to put in a word at the new york times they wouldn't even let me inside the lobby um but that said i you know i one thing i would say is that um the the attention that gets rewarded in social media, whether it's a creator payout on X or it's people paying for a subscription in media, it often is rewarding that salacious um, clickbaity stuff. And it's not that a journalist gets out of bed in the morning and says, hey, I want to create clickbait, but they do want to keep a job right. And they do want to get a promotion or a raise. You know, they're just like anybody else. And so if that's what is getting rewarded financially, it's very hard for the media outlet to say, no, we want to make less money. We don't want to give our, you know, we don't want to create a product that our customer wants. So let's create a product that our customer should want. That's really tough. And so I would encourage people to reward good journalism, invest in it, um, support it and, and kind of give the positive reinforcement there too, not just the negative of, Oh, I'm canceling my subscription to whatever paper. So, I mean, the one of these you hit on now is that incentives matter. Um, and so
0: I would just ask the obvious question on that, like, should journalism or media be not-for-profit
1: because of that? I mean, great question. I, I think that some journalism should be non for profit I would love to see a non for profit backstop with accountability, where quality is all that matters. Um, I, I think that would be great. Um, and I would love to see more media be that way. You know, it could just be nostalgia, but I think back to kind of, you know, the the BBC of decades ago. Um, or NPR, you know, where, where you, we didn't have to really worry about trusting them, you know, like you could just kind of, at least growing up in New York City for me in the 90s, like, you know, my family just could trust NPR. And I think um, that would be great to bring back. I do think that capitalistic media will always be a thing. Um, and I would love to see it make more money than it does because it's not always a great investment today. But that said, I do think that. Foundation-based nonprofit-based journalism is very important, um, and I'd love to see a lot more of it than we do right now, which is not very much.
0: The BBC has certainly lost the plot, I think it's fair to say, and uh, I don't listen to NPR as much as I used to, so I don't know what's going on there. But uh, you know, it, it's it's hard it's hard to stomach what I think has gone on at the BBC. They've feels like they've they've lost the plot, and I can tell you, in Israel, by the way, we have a kind of Semi government appointed or owned uh, broadcasting station, which is free from any government's uh, uh, influence on editorial decisions, but it's not for profit. The product, as my kids often remind me, by the way, one of the heads of Facebook told me it's the best media product out there, is one of the best in the world um, from a media product uh, perspective.
1: Which, uh, what's the name of the publication? Just, it's called Inger and Americans.
0: Con 11, K E N 11. and the the content is incredible and they've really kind of diffused it out to the producers in the field to, to make incredible, by the way, the producer of this podcast used to work there, Sophie. Uh, and, uh, that having been said, it's, it's a challenge because, you know, how do you kind of tell, uh, you know, criticize the government without them feeling that you're going after them, then the government, you know, pays the bills. And so it's, it's complicated. I don't think there's, there's one great answer. We'll probably middle our way through, but that, that actually brings me to, um, to a a slightly different point that i want to come talk about forbes so one of the great uh uh sorry what it says one of the great intrigues about forbes is the midas list that you publish every year um and i have heard from people that there's actually lobbying efforts on the part of venture guys uh to get themselves uh on the list and i often wonder about the incentives uh in the list not for forbes but like it's a it's a wonderful thing, but does it matter that much that I should lobby Alex Conrad about it? Tell us about some of the politics behind the scene that goes on, on on the Forbes minus list, which I for full disclosure have yeah, well,
1: been on, but I've never lobbied, lobbied Alex. Yeah, my, Michael does well on the minus list without lobbying. There you go. He's he's my example. Um, so I think uh, the, the the first thing I would say is that with any list, and this is especially true at Forbes, but it's true across the board. Um, There is going to be a survivor bias where people um, see someone make one of these lists and they try to reverse engineer how they made it. And so maybe they did send me an email, but that doesn't mean that the email actually affected their chances of making the list. And so I think one thing that I've seen with the 30 under 30 list where I've, I've done our VC list for a long time or with the Midas list, or with the Cloud 100 list that I also helped co-create for cloud companies, people who don't make these lists are always like, oh, I wasn't connected enough. I wasn't uh, kissing up to Alex enough. There was no Bakshish. And it's like, that is not um, really what's going on here. What's going on here is that, you know, if someone emails me and says, hey, Alex, you know, can you do me a solid with the Midas list? Like, I'm going to be polite. That's my job. You know, I'm I'm kind of in a services game the same way that a VC is, and so I'm going to say, "Oh, thank you so much for the note." You know, we we are going to give you a long look or something like that. But they're going to get the exact same look <laughs> than anybody else's. And in fact, when people are pinging me a lot or kind of like harassing me to make a list, it's it's a negative signal. Like I'm not stupid. You know, I I know that uh, someone who had their entire Stanford graduate school class. Ping me about thirty under thirty is probably trying too hard. <laughs> yeah, so the, that's that's the one point I want to very, make clear.
0: Yeah, the mice is very quantitative, at least in theory, is quantitative. And there's there's other parts to it. Like if I asked you, of the hundred people who make the Midas list in the, in the international or the US one every year, how many of them actually reach out to you? You know, to try uh, not, to, many. You know not, not many, not many. How many people who don't make the list reach
1: out and lobby? Way more. <laughs> Um, We get hundreds of submissions for the the international list of 100, and the best people often don't submit. Um, But one nice thing about the Midas list is we've run it for over 20 years now at Forbes, and then I co-created the the Europe and Israel list a few years ago, about five years ago now. And what you get is you get institutional data. So even if a firm doesn't submit in a certain year, we might have their past data or we have what their co-investors gave for a company. So, you know, we were talking about uh, WeWork, you know, when that was a driver of the list, when it was still a really big company, you know, one WeWork investor might not want to submit, but other investors did submit. And so if we know that they invested in the Series A or some early stage alongside the other investors, we know, um, roughly speaking, what kind of gains they're looking at. And so the nice thing about getting sort of a critical mass of data and one thing that's made the Midas list so hard for others to copycat is that you get that kind of critical mass of data that that gives you really um, a lot more clarity at that zoomed out view into what's real and what's not. And because let's let's face it, sometimes investors misremember to be generous um, when they invested in a company or what their role was in a company once in success.
0: I was uh, in a meeting yesterday um, with people who are with someone who's an expert in history and. Uh, he told us he told me a story last night um, about a bullet that had gone through somebody's neck and came out, and it took the eyelid and somehow pinned it against the wall from the outside. Now it sounds gory uh, or or whatever. And when they interviewed people afterwards, I think he said thirty-two people said they were the ones who removed the eyelid
1: from the wall and put it in a matchbox.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. There could only uh, be one. Witnesses are known to to be spotty, right? And so especially when it's a VC talking up their own book. (laughs) Alex, what do you say about VCs? I'm saying that they got to build a brand, Michael. They're told told to
0: build their brand. (laughs) Let's talk about that for a second, which is you cover individuals and cover firms. Is the individual brand more important or is the
1: firm brand more important for a venture capitalist? I think it really depends on the stage of their career and the fund. So this morning, I actually just published an investigation into a new firm that is kind of a crossover fund and has at least ten billion dollars in assets. And they um, are ghosts; like the the investors don't have photos on LinkedIn. Their website has nothing on it. They they did not want to participate in the article we wrote about them. Um, it's called Newlands. And it's an investment fund bankrolled by Jan Coombe, the WhatsApp billionaire. Um, and, you know, so sometimes you get these ghosts and they just want the results to speak for themselves. I would say that for most investors today, especially earlier stage and earlier stage career investors, it can be um, a limiting factor or make things harder to have no brand. Um, you, in this world where people are increasingly online, you want more people to know you and to find you. And if you're only relying on those personal referrals or networks, that can be tough. Like, obviously, we both know Gilly uh, at Cyber Starts in Israel. And like, Gilly will always find security startups, um, you know, and make them drive up from Tel Aviv. Um, and he can do that. But if you were the 25 year old Gilly, you would probably want to be on social media.
0: Yeah. Or on the or on the 30 under 30 list or on the Midas list, right? And Totally. You see, this is actually, I wonder if you've done the work on this. Is there any correlation? Uh, between people who have been on the 30 under 30 list and later performance in venture capital?
1: I haven't done that correlation, but I can tell you that um, a lot of the under 30 VCs at least have gone on to be extremely successful. Um, Some have left the industry like Sam Altman or Shyvon Zillis and are are big names in the tech world now outside of it. Others are leading their VC firms. So um, there's actually like a very good hit rate of those investors actually... Working out, I think the most interesting correlation that we actually saw is a PR mm-hmm. firm last uh, Midas List called Milltown did an analysis of um, social media usage of the main international Midas List and found that most Midas List investors never post to Twitter slash X, never post to social media. And I think the question is, were they successful before those things took off, or is it a flex that when you get successful enough? you don't need to do this stuff. Like people would think you're crazy that you're a Midas lister and running a podcast. <laughs> I think that was a barb. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a compliment that you are in that cadre of investors and actually out there talking to people like me. I think a lot of investors might see that as uh, what was the Chuma thing below their line? So I'd, I'd be below the line of a lot of folks.
0: Yeah, no, no. you're a friend more than anything. So, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> And I don't I don't have people who are below my line anywhere on the planet um uh although I did feel a little below the line I, I met Elon today musk uh in Israel boy is that guy incredibly yeah. smart um and talented uh what I, what's
1: the scoop is he is he recruiting for his AI company what why, can, why is he you, seeing you? <laughs> you you can ask him uh when, All
0: right. yeah but uh just 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 an incredible experience to be honest um so just I want to pivot for a second because um, we actually scheduled this long before this, uh, what's going on in Israel broke out. Um, But you wrote three super interesting stories about what's going on here. I actually want to start with, I think, with the last one you wrote on uh, on civilian efforts, uh, technology efforts in Israel to supply uh, nonprofits. Why don't I let you tell the story quickly that that you covered, um, and then I actually want to ask you a question about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we were uh, interested in how the tech community in Israel um, and also abroad uh, responded really fast to what was happening um, after the attacks. And one of the things that was interesting to us was uh, how technology was going to be used. So I've written in the past about um, really successful Israeli tech companies like monday.com. And um, talking to a bunch of founders and others in the industry, you know, I was hearing about Monday.com being used a ton to organize volunteer efforts. But then, you know, when you, when you start talking to people, you hear more. And so a um, founder told me that they were volunteering with Hatzalah and um, doing using this kind of Uber-like app to be a first responder. And I thought, wow, that is so interesting. I had no idea that this giant network of first responders in Israel, and they they have satellite offices, you know, in places like here in New York, too. Um, is using this very sophisticated location-based app to send people um, to an emergency as fast as possible, including on October 7th. So that was fascinating to me. And then as you talk to more people, um, you hear more stories and it almost became a question of what, what can we include? And so I also found it interesting, this startup um, called that, uh that is for multi-tenant um, homes or, or vacation properties like uh, on the beach. Uh, that that are going to get listed on a Verbo or Airbnb, etc. And so they opened up their platform uh, for people who had unused uh, properties to make them available to people who had been displaced by the attacks. Um, and I thought that was just really interesting. And so we kind of tried to round up some of these examples into this article that looked at sort of how the technology tools were being used. But the reality is, I also just as as you know heard about dozens of WhatsApp groups and much more sort of ad hoc efforts that were also sort of technology and also really inspiring. So the question that brings me to is the following.
0: Um, What you described is what I would call civic resilience, and particularly in a a tech-centric country like Israel with a high density of, of technology talent, this ability, one, to organize quickly, but two, to bring advanced solutions to solve real world problems, where candidly, I think it's fair to say, the government left a vacuum. And question, you know, you're starting to see companies like Anduril, right, which is which is a startup company, not anymore, but you know, a startup company using Silicon Valley or startup methodologies to attack something that was, no pun intended, uh, that was uh, that was you know previously the purview of governments and big prime contractors and some you know semi-governmental agencies. And the thing that, that's been occupying my headspace uh, since I've like been at ground zero of this civic organizing effort, but I'm interested in the outsider's perspective, is I'm wondering if this is a watershed moment from your perspective in, call it tech, Silicon Valley, Tel Aviv tech, where civilians begin to step in the shoes of government, bring 21st century solutions to what has been, I'd like to call it, you know a previous century's operating system, which is the government. And now we can kinda use uh orchestration of civilian efforts, you know, to to solve real societal problems. does it feel to you like a moment like that? How would you think about this on a broader scale in the US?
1: So I think Israel is unique um on some levels because your your audience will will probably know this better than me, but I was in Tel Aviv in June. Sorry I didn't uh I was shadowing the CEO of Wiz, which is the only reason for everyone. But I did not uh, go, go say hi to Michael in person. Um, but it was really interesting to hear kind of how a lot of the tech leaders of, uh, of that moment were using these tech tools to help uh, mobilize the community um, to, to sort of uh, protest or influence the government um, around the judicial reforms that a lot of tech leaders uh, were not fans of, uh, to put it mildly. And then you see the same rails, the same kind of... WhatsApp groups or um, other organizing groups being uh, deployed immediately for volunteer efforts after the uh, terrorist attacks, and it's really interesting to see like what happens to those rails after this. Is one way to think about it. Um, does it go back to protests? Does it go back to other civic engagement? I hope so. I hope that the uh, muscle that the community in in Israel has flexed is is used for good, um, whatever that would be. I think in the U.S. We don't have quite the same density of people, of organization. Um, So you're going to see more ad hoc efforts. But I do think companies like Anduril are starting to be more and more um, respected and key to our infrastructure from a government and defense standpoint. I think SpaceX has to be the, the leading example there, though. I mean, SpaceX is literally putting our government astronauts into space. Starlink is mapping a lot of our, you know, critical satellite infrastructure today SpaceX is uh if it's not a government agency it is it is now codependent in interesting ways with the US government and i think that's totally you know totally good for innovation
0: it's the most important company for US supremacy i think is you know is clearly SpaceX in my view and uh you know just a leap forward uh but, but again you know it, the, the question i'm trying to get at is is this a harbinger is it only in Call it defense technology. The case of you know SpaceX, uh, social transportation, by the way, and electrification. You know and, uh, under e- Elon Musk, Um what you see in Israel is what I would call this kind of. Can we create a new operating system for the country? I've called this already, going back two years ago. The government needs to move from management to orchestration, right? From managing all these things, you know, to orchestrating, like FEMA in the U.S. Right, the emergency management uh, agencies not exactly work terribly well. and it makes me wonder, given what's going on here, whether it's civilian efforts properly funded or orchestrated by the government, and kind of led by quote unquote Silicon Valley or Tel Aviv uh, is maybe a new trend and maybe a new trend to invest in and, and I'm living it. you're the outsider and you wrote about it. so i'm I more sure your perspective.
1: I think I think um I think Israel can be the maybe the proving ground for for larger uh, populations there because I think um, Again, smaller smaller country where tech is very clearly uh, the, the driver of, of GDP growth. Um, and I think maybe um, it's not as controversial uh, as maybe Silicon Valley can be in, with some politicians in the U.S. On, on both sides of the aisle. I think um, in the U.S. it's going to be three steps forward, two steps back, where you see kind of more codependence on these tech tools but in terms of like an operating system replacing the U.S. government, the U.S. government has lots of uh, arcane and bizarre and sometimes mind-numbing, uh, you know, pieces in place that would resist a uh, software update.
0: <laughs> you know, what what are the jokes I've been making? Were it's pretty serious actually. Is you know since they called up all these reservists to 8200, and uh, you know I've been there. There's like mattresses all around. This is like the you know, the biggest and most impressive hackathon I think ever created, you have all these brilliant guys who've turned up in 8,200 with mattresses, sleeping there for six weeks. The amount of uh, ideas and innovation that will come out of there over the next couple of years is mind boggling. And there's this, because of the failure of October 7th, um, I think the mindset over here has shifted to people wanting to apply their innovation and technology skills to public service. Um, They've got to solve these problems. And uh,
1: I think it's- That's, That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's awesome because so many of those smart eighty two hundred and eighty one grads, um, we see them creating cybersecurity companies that are I think good for the world. Usually, not always, but usually, um, but maybe incrementally better than what came before um, because it's like the safe smart thing to do. Or you know, or they join a company like you know. Obviously, I, I've written a cover story about Wiz this year, um, and I've talked to a bunch of these folks. And, and some of them even go into like ad tech, right? Which is not exactly world inspiring. And so if maybe those ad tech entrepreneurs and some of those security folks are getting into civic tech and, and other areas, I think that's that's only good for the world. I wonder if you make the Midas list of investing in that stuff. You know, I wrote about a, a new fund manager um, here in New York who has a fund just focused on things like uh, disinformation, user privacy, um, you know, People having real ownership of their digital assets. Um, some of this edge stuff. It's it's a brand new fund, so she's many years from making the Midas list. But I'd love to see more funds like that and more investment theses that are taking a different approach than, um, hey, see if Gilly and anyone else who's in on the 8200 uh, alumni network can cut me into the next security deal.
0: Uh, I love Gilly, but what's the name of the uh, what's the name of the person who's running the fund and the fund name? They you describe. describe.
1: Oh, um I'm talking about Gilly Renan, uh from well, Cyber no, I mean, with The New York fund. The New York Fund focused on Oh, oh. Um, Zoe Weinberg, ex ante Uh I just wrote about it. It's a thirty million plus first time fund. She's an impressive um woman here in Brooklyn. Good for her. Good for her. So I wanna switch gears for a second to another piece you just wrote, uh, about about
0: Gazan tech. So, you know, full disclosure, I have a company and we employ a, a hundred people in in uh, Ramallah um, or so maybe yeah close to a hundred people in, in Ramallah or so I um, have been involved with the uh, I hosted the Gaza sky geeks at my office some number of years ago and and a bunch of other initiatives um I'd love to hear like firsthand what you heard when you interviewed the Gazan uh, tech people
1: yeah, so it, this was this was something that was important to us to to think about and cover too because um when I went to Israel. Uh, with Forbes, uh, about a year or so before COVID, um, we did a hackathon in Jerusalem at the JBP offices or, or in their yard, and it was Israeli founders, but it was also um, Palestinian founders. They were from the West Bank, not from Gaza, but you know, founders from a very different background. And to see these entrepreneurs rubbing shoulders and joking around, like they had some of the similar technical problems. That felt very hopeful to me um, and it was a real kind of heartwarming feeling, um, even if it was just for a moment. And so it was, you know, obviously something that we thought about as we were talking to all these Israeli entrepreneurs was also like, hey, what about those founders who had kind of talked about economic progress and sort of technology as a way to maybe lift up their um, their own people in in places like Ramallah? And so we tried to talk to folks, and um, it was definitely somber. It was it was a it was a tough tough conversation for very different reasons. You know, I think some of these folks um, were just trying to say to me, "Hey, Alex, like I, you know," and, and my colleague Sarah Emerson, they were saying it's hard to think about the future of my startup when I'm not going to have stable internet access, when I my employees who are in Gaza can't get back to me in Ramallah um I can't reach them by phone I have no idea if they're alive or dead um and that's that could be weeks um you know and and I think like it was just a very visceral um sense where, where they where their startups like weren't going to have internet access um let alone worry about you know people getting called up or something like that and that is you know it's, it's very hard to compare these situations I don't think it's fair to compare them um, and I think, you know, Israeli startups have, have just shown incredible resilience. I just think separately also, um, it was something we wanted to look at was was these founders in, in the West Bank, especially, which is where most of the, the tech innovation is, um, such as it is, because I do think they were seen as a bastion of hope, as a sense of, you know, innovation right and and let's be real like if you went through Gaza sky geeks if you learned how to code if you were trying to get a remote job with Google or something you're probably the kind of person who would be easier for someone like you to talk to then then than than a random other person right like these are people who wanted to engage in the global economy yeah um, and 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 believed in the power of entrepreneurship and that's something that I do think is international I think it's uh, I think it's fair to say
0: that it's it's very tough uh, for them under Hamas as well. Um, you know, people who want to be part of the global economy, and uh, you know, let's just say those aren't those aren't 21st century uh, methods of of Hamas. You know, what what are the previous guests uh, that I had on the podcast? I guess like three guests ago was Al Waldman, who, uh, as you know, was the founder and CEO of Mellanox, which was sold to Nvidia, and, and his daughter uh, was killed in the October 7th uh, massacre. He was perhaps the largest employer of technology talent. Uh, Palestinian technology talent uh, both like, both in Gaza uh, and in uh, and in the West Bank and I, I it's you know he's he's always a hopeful person uh, an incredible uh, leader but uh, you know that that's that's a tough
1: element right now I think and uh, but... and, and Michael one one other thing that, that that just makes me think of is you know I do think that um, Palestinian tech founders were largely scared to talk to us because they didn't really see um, a way that it would help them or improve their lives, because they could face backlash from international community or they could face backlash from Hamas and people in their own backyard who don't like that they are talking to Americans, don't like that they are um, trying to use technology in this way. And I, you know, for them, it was sort of like, what is the upside in sticking my neck out and talking to you and facing repercussion? And that is a very tough thing as a journalist to hear, you know, like, like to, to, cause, cause there isn't really a good answer for that, right? Like why should you risk your life to talk to me? Um, it's just a Forbes story. I'm just trying to shine a light, but you have to protect yourself, you know? That's a tough thing as anybody to hear. I think
0: Uh, not just a, not just a journalist, you know, I, I, I'll throw an idea back at you uh, when Hamas hopefully is uh, gone. Well, it would be great to have a Forbes hackathon similar to the one you did at uh, or you were at it at, at JVP where we can get the Sky Geeks from Gaza and people uh, from Israel and and other places, maybe from international countries, the Gulf, et cetera, together in a big hackathon to solve problems for humanity. I think that'd be, that'd
1: be a big thing Forbes could do. You can write a full 100 list of all the people who participate in that. It would make me extremely happy to come back and and do something like that. So so um, let's let's hope that that is is something that you and I can give an update to the audience about down the road. So
0: tell me something else. The third story you wrote was about Israeli resilience, and, and maybe because I'm a little biased, so I, I you are biased, but it almost felt when you wrote the story that you were amazed that these people were continuing to deliver uh, with so many people called up. Um, and then I almost felt, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, that you were almost split on some of these smaller companies that were struggling to make it, um, inspired by the fact that they saw a higher calling to serve, to serve the country. But, you know, kind of wistful to sad that the companies would, would, would likely not make it because, you know, they couldn't focus on, on fundraising, um, and I have two questions in that regard. One is, is that an accurate reflection of how you think about the story, kind of amazement on the ability to continue to deliver so many companies, and then this kind of dichotomy on the younger companies? And then the second question I would ask you is, um, you cover the global tech world, and companies are going out of business everywhere, smaller companies right now. I kind of wonder in your own head how much you attribute to what's going on here geopolitically, locally, and how much you... Uh, you say oh no, that's just the general we hit the end of 2023, going to twenty twenty-four, money started to run out, and this is happening everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's a really good, uh, good question. Um, that takes like a deeper, deeper look into the story than I think many readers did. So kudos to you. I would say that the, the biggest thing that we were really trying to reinforce with the size point was that realistically larger companies could absorb people leaving more easily you know if you're if you're monday.com or you're um, a cybersecurity unicorn and some of your folks got called up by 8200 that was something you could plan for you have great investors like aleph and others you know who are already lined up to help you um get through it if you're a you know three piece three person startup um and your cto gets called up by 8200 Uh, you maybe don't have that support system in place. And even if you could have someone um, step in to try to help out, and we wrote about these volunteer efforts, like there was a sign-up group um, that I believe still exists where people could say, hey, I want to chip in and help a startup that had people get called up um, on a volunteer basis. And that's great. But I think we both know that sometimes with a small business or a three-person startup, training someone up or having someone step in who doesn't have the context is as much work as just doing it yourself and losing, you know, your, your technical co-founder as a tiny startup is just going to be pretty, uh, disruptive. And I think that was something we wanted to just make really clear was that people were pretty open mind, like pretty open eyed understanding the consequences of, of doing this. And we were, we were pretty blown away by just how, um, matter of fact they were about it how eager they were to still get called up you know people flying back from the u.s um or trying to organize donations on their way at the airport to get back because this was just something they had to do i don't think there is the same sense of civic duty in the u.s in any industry but including among entrepreneurs you know where i think entrepreneurs would be like no you know i gotta protect my startup um were those startups struggling anyway maybe um it is true that startups are failing all over and that is natural and it is just part of, part of the, the game. Um, and it's a tough time in general for startups globally, uh, to fundraise if they don't have revenue or some clear metrics. I don't think that that was really like the point of the story though. I think that that is just a backdrop and sort of context here, um, that I think makes it either more poignant or you could be cynical and say, Hey, Best best way to wind down a startup is to just go volunteer and then come back and start something new with those three people at 8,200 that you slept next to, as you were saying.
0: You know, it's funny. I I have a better idea. You may be right about that. I actually came up with a a different perspective, which is, uh, I think, not covered but hinted to in your story, which is it made me wonder whether this resilience will mean that the failure rate of Israeli tech companies is going to be lower uh, than... Everywhere else in the world in the bad funding environment, because the kind of grittiness needed to kind of get through this uh, will enable some people to survive on fumes in a way that few others uh, would in a in a normal place.
1: So I think that's possible, but I also think that um, again, speaking as a New Yorker who's just visited. Um, I think uh, my sense of the founders in the the Tel Aviv and wider Israeli startup ecosystem is also that people are just very pragmatic and practical. And so I think that could they be cockroaches that you can't kill and just kind of persevere? Well, no, I know that's a a term that is often a good thing in startups. Uh, At least here in the US, startups say they want to be a cockroach because to explain to anyone who doesn't get that, that means it's impossible to kill you. You know, you can step on you, flush you, whatever you survive, and I think an in a lean funding environment. Means,
0: but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. are, so.
1: Fair enough. Well, it's 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 there's even a company now, a, a unicorn here in the US called Cockroach Labs, for the same idea. So, want to make clear that that is not meant in any pejorative way. Um, but but the point was that um, these companies could survive even in a leaner situation. But I think that the founders might be practical enough that they would hit it fast or or go to something else if they see a bigger opportunity, much like the Wiz founders did um, in, in the profile I wrote about them, rather than just kind of get caught in the messy middle for five years. Because I do think that a founder's biggest asset is their time. And you know, spending five years on an idea that's not going to be very big is not always the best way you could use your time. Do you think, uh, you
0: know, you cover investors globally, Benjamin, do you think this war has changed investor attitudes on in Israel in any meaningful way to any direction?
1: I think um, investors who were interested in investing in Israel are as interested and more interested in investing. Um, and I think investors who were not looking to invest in Israel, it's probably because the sectors, you know, they're not security minded or enterprise SaaS. And I think, you know, traditionally, most of the global venture investments have been kind of more on the B2B side with a couple, you know, big consumer exceptions. I think that what you were talking about with civic technology or maybe new areas, I think it would be great to see um, global investors be looking to Israel for more types of companies. But I think if you were already kind of having Israel on your radar, you doubled down and you like want to invest more than ever. I'm curious if that's your sense, too. It is. It is. One of the things I've been trying to figure out for myself, and I'm interested in what you think. Is like I've been trying to summarize
0: for myself in one sentence um, what a global investor or you think today about Israeli founders. Like, mm. how would you summarize what what differentiates them in one sentence? Scrappy, efficient, well networked,
1: highly technical.
0: Interesting. The, the the word that keeps coming to my head, but I can't put it into use properly, is is focused. And resilient those are the two words that keep coming to me um but i feel like i need a better sentence and i haven't been able to come up with it uh yet but let, let me change gears entirely for a second so you tweeted i can't remember it was yesterday or the day before well we have to keep saying tweeted because you can't say you x'd it that doesn't make any sense but, <laughs> uh that like you're finally picking your yeah, head. you should
1: up. have mentioned that to elon Ma- michael you had your shot today i can't believe you didn't you didn't ask me about that yeah so the uh
0: uh you, you, you treated that, you know, it's finally the first day you're not writing about open AI uh, mm-hmm. and what went on there.
1: What's your take? Like, what happened? What's my take? Uh, the, the trillion dollar question, right? Um, I, you know, I, I think that the narrative that we've seen to start to emerge where there was a technological breakthrough in model training that um, freaked some people out and excited other people. That does seem credible to me. Um, it is what my sources were kind of signaling. Um, at first, people saw the shock announcement and they were like, for a board to fire a CEO so abruptly, the CEO must have done something really bad. And it went to people immediately thought, is it financial misconduct or personal misconduct or something like that? Um, but that always seems shocking to me and surprising. Also, that kind of investigation would usually involve the person. And I was at an AI conference two days before he got fired. Um, in San Francisco and he stopped by the the speaker dinner and I had a nice little chat with Sam and he did not look like someone who was about to be fired. Um, and so I was just like, wow, that doesn't seem like the right narrative. And so this technology uh, angle feels credible, but it's also, also incredible because it's like, really, this is really why you would fire Sam Altman and Im- immolate your own board and cause all this craziness over a model improvement. Um, at the least, I think the board of directors of open AI just did a masterclass in bad communications.
0: <laughs> I hear that. Speaking of bad communications is a good segue. Like you're a journalist, you're at a media company, you guys run conferences. And over the last six or seven weeks, uh, Patty Cosgrave self-immolated. Uh, also I propose self-immolation, you know, uh, He's resigned. Web Summit was a disaster and imploded. You know, he had been co-opted, so to speak, already by the Qataris for the next one. You know, how how do you think about that self-immolation? Like, how, how do you explain kind of ruining your media franchise that way?
1: Yeah, well, I um, I haven't studied that so much specifically in terms of how Web Summit went or anything, and so I don't want to necessarily. Um, speak out of turn there. But I think what having just gone to the event in past years pre COVID and seeing what was happening with Patty's initial tweets, I think there, this is a moment where there is the intent of your words and then there's the public perception that you should realistically expect. There are things that you might say in a certain context and have them spark legitimate debate or conversation. And, but then there's also the read the room factor. Where in a certain room you should not say that, and in a certain time it is inappropriate to say that, and I think what happened here was a real refusal to read the room, and a really major consequence that affected a ton of other people, employees of the of the conference business, um, contractors, people who were going to speak, and it was going to be good for their company, um, and so I was just like, what a what a waste, what a what a horrible shame that the room was not read here in a way that's going to have this like very negative consequence. Um, You know, I wasn't going to attend the conference either way, but um, it was just, it was just really sad for me to see like, why, why is this? It just, you know, I don't know if own goal is a term there, but you know, it felt like an own goal. I come back a lot of it to what you said at the beginning of conversation and maybe I would
0: phrase it that lack of empathy maybe has real costs uh, to people and uh, that's part of reading the room and you know, be empathetic is to understanding the room um, and turns out that it has real costs and uh, so I, I want to finish with two quick questions if I can which is um, how do you decide what to cover? Like everybody wants to talk to you they either want to pitch on why they should be on the Midas list or the 30 on the 30 list or please cover my company they know you've got a big audience how do you decide what to cover?
1: Well part of it is that I i um... I always feel short on time and I have to really defend my time and so I kind of every morning think from an impact standpoint am I spending this day well is this the highest impact way I could spend my day and unfortunately a lot of the time I don't give myself a great grade there I'm like I could be doing better maybe this I should not have agreed to this meeting or maybe this article is not the highest impact one I can have but I at least try to be writing things that I think are going to drive conversation and have meaningful impact and contribute to a healthier tech ecosystem, because I do think shining a light as a reporter um, being annoying sometimes to people, but fair. um, I do think overall it's good for the ecosystem. And so if I'm writing a story that is not, it isn't fun, the technology isn't interesting to me and I don't think it's high impact. That's where I'm like, what, what am I doing here? Um, More often than not, you know, there's, at least one of those components that gets me really interested like this morning's article about this secret new fund i'm like hey if there's a 10 billion dollar fund out there and nobody knows who it is and is starting to invest in startups i think founders should know who these guys are and so i can be the person to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and be like here's who they are so the next time they pitch you or something you know that this is yan kim's money or you know that this is a new 10 billion dollar fund in texas that's a unique situation, of course. But similarly, I might say, oh, this technology is really important, and and that's what's going to focus um, my story. And and I, I need to check off at least one of those boxes, ideally all of them. Does that make sense? It does. So uh,
0: the next question, the last question I want to ask you is the following, all right? Maybe it's a hybrid question. Uh, you were very public on your own Twitter X or whatever it was. Uh, you got engaged, and it was posted there. You got married. And- I'm interested in how has married life changed you as as a journalist and someone covering tech and then the follow up to that is you know single journalist now married uh covering this you thought you talked a lot about your great grandfather at the beginning of the conversation and what an extraordinary person uh, you think he was
1: and I want to ask
0: you when you're a great grandfather, how do you want to be
1: remembered Wow um these are some deep deep questions well i would it's say um, for me, it's
0: early in the morning for you.
1: <laughs> yeah i'm like man i needed more than one copy um first off my wife's vc firm um they haven't given me any juicy stories so married life hasn't helped my career in terms of inside tips despite now being married to a a consumer investor wait so is she that, you on, the,
0: on the minus list of the 30 under 30 just have so them clear she has an unfair she's,
1: she's 30. She's, she's, she's not going to bug me. Thank God. Um, maybe the Midas list in 10 years no. Um But I, but I think uh, married life has grounded me in the sense of um, it does help you just remember that life is more than just quick uh, job wins or getting caught in the rat race. Um, and that we are really a partnership who are, who are playing a long game here um, and trying to, not just build uh our careers but kind of build a family together and i think that marriage has just been great in kind of giving me that um sanity check or kind of deep breath because i am the kind of person who is type a crazed. like i had to delete the chess app off my phone because i would just play for hours trying to get my rating up um i'm that kind of competitive person and so to have that grounding has been really important for me and then in terms of you know how I'd want to be remembered. It's it's hard, you know. Michael, I I think when I was younger, when I was in college, um, and I was big in history, and I still care about history, but I I really studied a lot of these kind of great leaders, and I thought, oh, it's, life is all about having the biggest possible impact in very noticeable ways. You know, whether it's you're a head of state, or you had a massive new invention, or you created a new economic theory, like. You know, the, the key in life, like winners will be remembered forever for doing something really big. And I do think that as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm about to turn 35, I'm married now, I am thinking about kind of the the next phase of my life and career. I want to be driving conversation and leaving the ecosystem here in a better place than I started. I want people to enjoy my stories, but I am starting to kind of accept that maybe I won't be remembered 30 years from now. Maybe it'll just be my great grandson who remembers me and, and, you know, no book I write will stand the test of time or something. And that's okay. And and so I've definitely started to think about impact in a much more local, personal way and less that kind of be a great man of history. Um, I'm curious your thoughts there, because you are one of the leaders in your field and you have a huge family. So how has your thought changed there over time? Uh, aren't I doing the questioning on this uh, podcast? Oh, come on! I can't, I can't give you that answer and not get a little bit back. That I, that was way too good a question. <laughs> I,
0: I think of the world as a relay race that we need to leave this earth a better place for our children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren. And one of the things that changes you when I became a grandfather, I, I thought it at you know maybe sixty percent when I was a dad, or still am a dad, uh, but when I became a grandfather, it becomes even more so. Uh, more prominent is how do we leave this world a better world for our our the generations that follow us, and uh, that has that 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 occupies my my mind. And you know, and it's how do you leave a family like that? How do you leave a country like that? And how do you leave a world uh, that is better for that? And, and grandparenthood has has made that far more prominent in in my thought and may, and in my behavior. Uh, my kids are probably telling you not too much of my demeanor um but but i think uh that that that's that's i think the big one and you know and it's uh i think we're in a tricky decade i i just finished writing something or almost finished writing something that kind of looks at the world from 2008 till 2030 um which i think is a yeah it's like a 20 two-year period of of real, you know, dissonance. We had the great financial crisis, then Zerp um, created this. Uh, COVID, Russia, Ukraine, you know, Israel, Hamas, radical jihad rearing re- its ugly head uh, around the world, um, China, U.S. in the middle. I mean, it's, we got a lot going on. And so, uh, you know, how do we leave this a better world for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? uh uh, you know matters and i'm actually eager because that for the when you write the book about your grand-grandfather to maybe think about the question about how did he leave the world a better place for you and then how you can do it for your great-grandchildren
1: yeah and you know i've thought a lot about that too because my grandmother is 90 now his daughter and i want so badly to be able to show some progress to her um so that even if the book isn't ready uh in a time that she can appreciate it, um, she can see how seri- how much it means to me. But it also got me thinking about her impact and her effect on our family too. You know, I'm so proud of my sister and my cousins. You know, her grandkids. And even though my great grandfather met all these famous people in history, uh, that, you know, and and I lived this crazy life. Um, He did it for his daughter, my grandmother, and she had a massive impact in her own way as a nurse practitioner and as a volunteer um, and doing a lot of other stuff. So, you know, he would be the one who rubbed shoulders with the famous people in history. But, uh, you know, this is also for my grandmother, too. And I think that reflection has been really healthy for me.
0: By the way, I, I can go. Hold on. So these over here in the corner of my office is a box. Uh, on Saturday night, I went to pick up my grandmother passed away this year at 99, and they finally cleaned out all of her effects, including ten cartons of old pictures. I have uh their wedding album in in the box over here. But this, apropos technology, these are DVDs. You can see this one. It says on it 1960s old films. They have they had old negative films, real to real films. And I guess my grandmother had digitized onto DVDs. I actually I have four boxes of the old films, and we're now going to digitize them and get to look at them uh, and see what was there. And you can kind of come, you know, reach back and reach forward. And one of the things about the world, the technology world, digital world, is you can reach back and reach forward. And you know, I'm excited to see what's what's on these uh, over here.
1: Well, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to share share it in a blog post or something so I can I can learn a little bit from it too. And Deal. I promise to to share my my story with you as well.
0: Deal. Feel free to send a picture of your great-grandfather. So, Alex Conrad, thank you for joining us. You can learn more about Alex on Twitter or X, uh, at Alex Conrad, that's spelled A-L-E-X-K-O-N-R-A-D. And please, please don't bug him about the next Midas list uh, or tweet at him with that or or DM him. But Alex, thank you for coming and chatting and just super appreciate you and your thoughtfulness and
1: how you think about things globally. And uh, you've been a good friend, so thank you. Thank you for, for nine years of great conversation and um, a really thoughtful chat today. Yes. Thanks, Alex.